listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville. For their support, we'd like to thank Colfax Farm and Country Store, family-owned since 2007 in downtown Colfax, open daily 9 to 6, Sundays 10 to 2, carrying hay, feed, premium pet and bird food, also supplies and gifts. Delivery available. ColfaxFarmStore.com and Carmen's Gardens and Greenhouses, locally owned custom greenhouse and garden supply store, stocking fabrics, down-to-earth brand amendments, and gardening supplies. Open weekdays 10 to 5, Loma Rica Drive, Grass Valley, across from the airport. That's K-A-R-M-E-N-S gardens.com. After the NPR headlines and local weather, we'll have an update on the tree sittings in Nevada City. Also, we'll have a special message from Michael Moore and a commentary from George Rebain. At 6.30, we'll be broadcasting this week's edition of The Sages Among Us. And at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines, followed by regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. With six days to go before Election Day, former Vice President Joe Biden and President Donald Trump have both condemned the violence that's occurred during some protests in Philadelphia. NPR's Jen Newman reports on their response to the fatal police shooting of a black man there Monday. Amid the Philadelphia protests sparked by the death of Walter Wallace Jr., Trump is calling for law and order and respect for police. He argues Biden and other Democrats need to take a stronger stance on destructive demonstrators. You can't let that go on. Again, a Democrat-run state, a Democrat-run city, Philadelphia. But Biden has condemned the violence. There is no excuse whatsoever for the looting and the violence. None whatsoever. Biden noted that protesting overall was, quote, totally legitimate. He added that if elected, he plans to create a commission to study ways to lessen lethal shootings by police. Jen Newman, NPR News. The heads of some of the nation's biggest tech companies spent part of their day getting a scolding from Senate Republicans on Capitol Hill. Amid charges by some lawmakers, the companies exhibit anti-conservative bias. At the same time, GOP lawmakers at the Senate Commerce Committee were lambasting the tech company leaders. They were also warning about possible restrictions on those companies in the future. Some lawmakers made it clear they'd like to challenge the tech giant's legal protections regarding online speech. Some lawmakers, including Committee Chairman Roger Wicker, saying laws governing online speech should be updated. The State Department is facilitating international observer missions to watch U.S. elections. There are fewer observers than usual, though, because of COVID-19, and it's a challenging operation, as NPR's Michelle Kelman explains. The former Polish diplomat who's leading observers from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe says it's like monitoring 50 different elections. There's nowhere as complicated as the United States. Ursula Gotzik is worried that the rules are changing and being challenged in court, even as voting is well underway. Her interim report also raises concerns about Trump's rhetoric, sowing doubt about the election process. Sometimes people say, well, you know, you must be rooting for somebody in this election. I said, well, yeah, of course I am. And then they think they're going to get the scoop. And you know who I'm rooting for, don't you? 
the voter. The OSCE has been monitoring U.S. elections for nearly two decades. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Package shipper UPS reported both profits and revenue surge during the company's most recent quarter. With so many people shopping online and packages that need to be delivered, the company says its average daily volume has jumped 13.5 percent. Profits were up 12 percent to $1.96 billion for the third quarter. The sell-off continued on Wall Street today and around the world amid mounting concerns over further economic slowing due to the potential coronavirus lockdowns. The Dow plunged 943 points. This is NPR. Germany is the latest country in Europe to slam back shut some of its recently reopened economy amid an uptick in coronavirus cases there. German Chancellor Angela Merkel announcing today the country as part of a four-week shutdown will close restaurants, bars, cinemas, theaters, and other leisure facilities there in a bid to curb a sharp rise in virus infections. Merkel and the country's 16 state governors agreed to the partial lockdown during a video conference today. Germany's new restrictions will go into effect on Monday. Newark, New Jersey is under an 8 p.m. curfew ordered by the city's mayor to limit activity after a huge spike in COVID-19 cases. Karen Rouse from member station WNYC is more. The rate of the virus spread in Newark is staggering, especially compared with New Jersey as a whole. As of last Friday, there were 10,041 cases and 673 deaths. The state's test positivity rate is 5.28 percent. Newark's is nearly 12 Cases have been especially aggressive in the East Ward. It's the Latin center of the city, steeped in Spanish and Portuguese culture, restaurants and nightclubs. One in four people has the virus there. The curfew deals another serious blow to restaurants and nightclubs already struggling financially as a result of pandemic-related closures. The two-week curfew began Tuesday, and city officials will reassess conditions in November. For NPR News, I'm Karen Rouse in Franklin Park, New Jersey. Crude oil futures prices fell to their lowest level since earlier this month, oil ending the session at 37.39 a barrel on the New York Mercantile Exchange amid mounting fears of major coronavirus-related slowing. This is NPR. Next up, this report from the Public News Service. More than 4,300 doctors and nurses have just published an open letter to patients, urging them to demand action on climate change. The letter, which is backed by 16 national and state-level medical organizations, declares that climate change is a health issue. Dr. Amanda Milstein is a pediatrician from Richmond and founder of a group called Climate Health Now. She says extreme weather events worsened by climate change are impacting access to health care. Twice in August, we actually made the decision to close our clinic because even with the use of an air filter, our indoor air quality because of wildfire smoke was so poor that it was unhealthy to bring babies and children into our clinic. Milstein says wildfires and flooding can overwhelm hospitals with an influx of patients or force them to evacuate altogether. Higher temperatures exacerbate pollution and drive a spike in heart attacks, respiratory illness and heat stroke. Stagnant water increases the risk of waterborne infectious diseases. Milstein also warns that children especially are vulnerable to asthma and allergies because they breathe faster than adults and spend more time outside. With warmer temperatures, we're seeing an increase in the amount of pollen and other allergens that are in the air. So we're seeing a significant spike in children who are suffering from seasonal allergies. The letter calls for policies that move toward a clean energy economy and prioritize the needs of the community over profits for the fossil fuel industry. 
For Public News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. And taking a look at the weather, first here in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, looks like we'll have a low of 56 tonight, high of 76 tomorrow, sunny all week with highs in the upper 70s. Sacramento will have a low of 42 tonight, high of 79 tomorrow. Again, sunny skies through Monday with highs in the low 80s. And in Truckee, low of 21, high of 71, mostly sunny with highs in the low 70s. The standoff with PG&E in the graveyard off West Broad Street in Nevada City continues. This has been going on for almost a month. Today, I spoke with Matthew Asapaski about the situation that has caused protesters to camp in the trees of a large pine in Nevada City for almost a month. Good morning, Matt. Uh, well, we're out here um, off of Broad Street and up at the cemetery, and there was some anticipation today that perhaps this was the day that the police were going to come and um, essentially extract people that are up in the tree, but it seems pretty quiet out here right now. Yeah, pretty quiet so far. It's a bit of a guessing game. Uh, we've been maintaining a constant around-the-clock presence here for a couple weeks now, and it's it's difficult to know when the police might choose to make a move against us, but we're uh, holding the space for these trees um, for as long as we can and doing our best to have people here all the time so that our base is covered. Uh, for our listeners, just give us a basic background on, on why um, you're here and why the people are here up in the tree. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the original plan for PG&E was to cut 263 trees uh, between West Broad Street and Orchard Street in Nevada City. Um, and that's really the tip of, tip of the iceberg for a plan that they're going to be implementing across the state, uh, taking down tens of millions of trees, tens of millions of healthy trees, possibly hundreds of millions of trees overall. But our early advocacy was centered around making sure that the city hired a third-party arborist to re-inspect some of the more controversial decisions that PG&E had made. And uh, he was a certified master arborist, more highly qualified than anybody PG&E had on site. And since then, we've been advocating to protect the trees that he judged as low risk to uh, PG&E infrastructure. And um, our purpose of being up here in the cemetery is to respect this sacred space in a way that, you know, these trees are rooted in the bones of our ancestors in this town. Um, we've been spending our time cleaning off some of these graves and making sure that these shaded resting spaces aren't disturbed by heavy machinery and tree removal and sunlight and the undergrowth that will follow that. As I understand it, uh, PG&E will take out trees even though they are low risk and uh, we don't have time to go to the into the complexities about how that decision was made but uh, that means these trees are low risk trees uh, but they're still being taken out is that their general policy their general policy right now is to quote their spokesperson there is no such thing as an acceptable level of risk and for those of us that live in forests we know that every single tree has 
some possibility of causing damage in some way. And so we're, we're standing against that philosophy because obviously as long as there's any trees standing, there's going to be some risk from those trees. And we believe that the long-term solutions have to be a strengthening of PG&E's infrastructure, meaning hardening the lines themselves or putting the lines underground where possible, and that these massive and undiscriminatory tree removals are simply not going to be a solution that's going to be sustainable for the ecosystem or for the state or for PG&E's corporate culture, ultimately. Uh, how many people have been alternating uh, going up in the platform that's up in this tree? There's been uh, about 10 different people that have been up there at different times. You know, we're obviously making sure that, well, the people who are leading that project are obviously making sure that it's uh, people who know what they're doing and our, our safety equipment is, is rigged as well as we can up there. Um, so there's been about 10 people in the tree and then uh, they're never alone. There's always people on the ground as well supporting them. So basically, PG&E appears to be waiting for uh, the Nevada City Police to remove people from the tree before they actually start doing anything. Is that correct? That is my understanding, yes. I know that PG&E does have its own private security force that they've talked about bringing in here. Um, but my understanding right now is that they're leaning on Nevada City Police to do the hard lifting for them. Matt, thank you so much for keeping... KVMR listeners informed and feel free to contact us uh, anytime to let us know uh, about future developments here. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Bob. Well, the Stockholm Moore has a commentary for the listeners of KVMR. This commentary does not necessarily reflect the opinions of KVMR Radio, its listeners, its staff, or its board of directors. Thank you so much. Honored to be asked to come on here and to talk to all of you who decided to help out this station in, uh, in, during this kind of dark and difficult time. So thank you for those of you who contributed uh, to this. Um, and speaking of the dark time we're in. The commander-in-chief, the COVID-in-chief, uh, has uh, been doing his best to scare people, calling upon his Second Amendment people to be there, be poll watchers, and um, intimidate people in line. I mean, whatever we think may happen in these next three weeks, we really don't have a clue. And that's what makes it even scarier, because Trump and his people are capable of immense savagery, very capable of it. And we're all trying to figure out how to deal with it because, you know, we're peaceful people and we just want everybody to have a chance to vote, including them, including the people we disagree with. So they know they're going to lose or they're pretty sure they're going to lose. You know, here's the thing. This, this is what's going to happen. And I'm only going to state what will not make me seem very smart, but quite obvious that either Trump is going to pull this off and get another four years because he's capable of it, because he's smarter than you and I are. Smarter in the sense of he's an evil genius, and we would have no idea, you and I would have no idea how to figure out how to lose an election by 3 million votes. Like if I had told you here on KBMR five years ago, I'm going to run for president, and here's my plan. I'm going to lose by 3 million votes, but I'm going to be given the inauguration address, and I'm going to be the one in the White House. You would have thought I was friggin' crazy. So I 
don't take Donald Trump one iota for granted, not one bit. He is he is capable of pulling this off again. And I know I, I tried to warn people last time that this was going to happen. It was only because, I mean, I was living in Michigan and I saw what was going on and it was no surprise to me that he was going to pull this off. But I have to tell you, it, uh, I'm not saying, this is not 2016. People have had four years of Trump. He's depressed his own base. He's killed his largest demographic, senior citizens. He's killed them off by a hundred or at least a hundred thousand or more of them. Now, it seems like the dumbest thing to do, right? But because he's an evil genius, it doesn't make him like smart. It just means that when out of control, this is what he does. And so he's allowed his base to die this year. He could pull this off. We could win by 5 million votes. He could lose by 5 million popular votes and still win the Electoral College. So I treat every day right now as if Trump could win and is going to win. And not to motivate myself, just to be honest with myself that this is what we're faced with. I've tried to be honest. I've tried. To, I've brought people on my podcast over the last uh, six or seven months trying to tell people just what was going on with this virus. And I know people want to have hope and they want to be happy. All of us want that. But I don't think that you deal with a crisis by trying to fake it or fake like there's will be, you know, this will all be gone by April. This will all be gone by summer. This will all be gone by the end of this year. And I've been trying to tell people not, not just myself, but the people I've had on who used to work at the CDC, doctors, esteemed doctors, who said on my podcast, first they were saying it was at least a two-year pandemic, then a three-year. Now they've been saying it's a three- to four-year pandemic. Well, none of us want to hear that. We don't want to, how do we deal with it? See, I'd rather hear it. I'd rather hear bad news like that because I can immediately begin to figure out how I and you, we, are going to deal with it. We wrap our heads around it, and then we go for it. And you know, people in this society in our country have had it much, much worse over the 200 plus years of this country. People that were here before us talk about they've had it worse. They've had it worse before we knew we could have it worse. So I think we're capable, though, of whether it's the coronavirus or whether it's Trump virus or whether it's the Supreme Court virus. But here's the other possibility uh, to another four years of Trump. It is very possible. Maybe I should lower my voice when I say this, but it's very possible that we could crush him in a tsunami. I mean, a tsunami of balance in a way that he could never recover. He could never go out there and call for his civil war. Just crush him. People are, look at the people in line all across the country. 45 states have early voting open now. The lines are so long. There was a line in Georgia yesterday. It was seven hours long. That's how badly people want it to get rid of this guy. You know, and yes, we're worried that, we're, that we have a chance of losing because hate, hate seems to be such a stronger emotion than love right now. So the haters will all be out there. And that's true. His base will be there. Every single last one of them, at least 63 million. But I have to tell you, from my sense of things, there are so many millions more of us now. Just the young people alone. I mean, 16 million young people have turned 18, turned voting age in the four years of Donald Trump. That's a, that's a really cool statistic. You think about it. And that the, the stat I saw yesterday, 70% of the country does not want to get rid of Roe v. Wade. That's the country we live in. People haven't gone to the right now. They've gone to the left. They've come toward us. 90% want some form of gun control, new laws. 70-some percent believe the minimum wage should be a living wage, at least $15 an hour. And I'm not pie in the sky here. 
I had Cornell West on my podcast and he was saying, and I said, boy, I, I totally agree with the way that you look at this, this election this year. He said, he said that, he said, I, w- I will vote for Biden, but I will not lie for Biden. And I thought, wow, that is, uh, that's really kind of a very good way to say that because none of us are going to go out there and tell people, oh, you got to vote for Joe Biden because, you know, things are going to get really good. I don't think I believe that. And I don't think a lot of you believe that, but we can stop the monster. And if, if we can defeat the monster and we're left with a tortoise who survives in his shell, maybe we'll find ways to work with that because we're very active, aren't we? We're very engaged. We're very passionate about the things we believe in. And maybe the new guy will go, well, you know, the guy, yeah, that's not a bad idea. Maybe well, let's, let's have a committee and study it. Who knows? I don't know. I know he's the guy that told Wall Street, as a fundraiser of his last year, uh, told all the fat cats, quote, nothing will fundamentally change. So, okay, we'll see. That's not for you to say, by the way, Joe Biden. We're the ones who'll determine what's going to change and if you're going to change. So, uh, So that's why it's really incumbent upon all of us, I think, right now to use this time to get ready, to be ready, uh, to, to crush the orange, orange crush, remove him, remove his crime family. And then get ready on November 4th for the next battle, which is to get these things that we need to have in this country. And, and weirdly enough, I still believe that we can actually make these big changes in our lifetime. But that will only happen when all of us are active and involved and doing everything we can to hold our hand out to the people who don't want to vote, who've given up. You know what I tell somebody tells me, I don't vote, I don't vote. I said, man, I have such admiration for you. I don't blame you one single bit. They're all crooks. You know, and the fact that I know you love this country, I know you love your neighbors and the people who live in this country, it's got to kill you to have to stay home on election day because I know you want to participate. I know you want to fix things, but, but you've just realized it's all corrupt and you can't. But just this one time, just this one time, come on out, come with me. I'll go with you. We'll, we'll, we'll go have lunch after. I want historians to write about this month we're in in a way they've never written about an election before. What got in to these Americans who were generally apathetic, half of them never voted, and then all of a sudden, they poured out of the house. Some made it to the mailbox. Others made it to the polling place. And he was gone. I want to see a tsunami of voting, the likes of which this country and no democracy has ever seen. So thank you for having me on. And I love, I love where you live. I love the people I've met there. I know it's been hard during the pandemic. I know the people that have lost homes. I know the people have got their bags packed. Every, every time I see this in California, all I can do is recommit to fixing this, this that causes the, the pain and suffering that many of your friends and neighbors have had to go through. I'm not giving up. Don't you give up. Don't leave me alone with this. This commentary did not necessarily reflect the opinions of KVMR's members, staff, or board of directors. You're listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville, 
and this is the Wednesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. KVMR's news program airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. Coming up at 6.30, we have this week's edition of The Sages Among Us, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Closing out today's newscast, we have George Rebain with a commentary. Dear Governor Newsom, this is an open letter to you from an old and very disgruntled citizen who has spent the last 63 years of his life in this beautiful state. During these decades, I went to school, earned my living, raised my family here, and watched the steady decline of a once golden state. And I can attest that it truly was the golden state because I was there. Today, after decades of a virtual political monopoly in Sacramento, our state has landed on the bottom of the barrel with several other equally discredited states. We purposefully raised our taxes to the highest levels, became the leader in regulatory burdens heaped on our businesses and homeowners, and are now the hands-down mecca of the nation's welfare recipients. One out of three live here. We lead the nation in the number of homeless and invite their filthy tent favelas that now stretch from the coastal cities to the Sierra foothills. Our food and fuel prices have skyrocketed to the highest in the nation. Our roads, bridges, and other infrastructures are in third-world disrepair. Public employee pensions are unfunded to the tune of unpayable billions, and businesses and middle-class taxpayers are departing in droves to greener pastures. Add to this California's highest electricity costs and disastrous power outages that now resemble the availability of electricity in second and third world countries, and you almost have the complete picture of where we are today and the direction we're headed tomorrow. And that because the state's legislative and regulatory pipeline is chuck full of a lot more of what already pains us. But, Governor, this is just a short summary of California's deficits and decline, about which long and detailed books have been written. On top of all this, the state's political leaders and bureaucrats have created a problem that's even up close and personal, one that affects all Californians, especially those of us who live in the rural counties. Decades of forest and wildland mismanagement by all agencies of government and their incompetently run power utilities continue to present a clear and present danger from wildfires. However, in the last years, these politicized management failures have become a major disruption to our lives and livelihoods. Specifically, I'm talking about the travesty of public safety and power shortage shutoffs. Turning off power to millions of already overcharged utility customers should be a criminal act since power shortage shutoffs are the result of abysmally poor planning practices that range from your office all the way down to the sinecured bureaucrats working for the public utilities. And the anticipative public safety power shutoffs are totally unnecessary. In Northern California, PG&E has had decades to survey and maintain their high-voltage long lines through marginally accessible landscapes. As a result, today the likelihood of windblown vegetation-caused fires should be very low, and downed vegetation-caused fires in built-up populated areas are within minutes of fire departments that can respond quickly. All this makes large-scale public safety power shutoffs a dubious policy. For the tens of thousands of us without power and without wind, these all have the appearance of politically motivated CYA operations. 
What reinforces this assessment is that no one from any utility or government agency has offered a more detailed, reasonable basis for these power shutoffs. Managing these shutoffs over large populated areas is a complex systems problem, and optimizing the details of power shutoff policy should have been done long ago by our state's technicians. We are the technology leader in the Union, yet our government's application of appropriate technologies and sciences resides on the fringes of pre-enlightenment feudalism. During weather events, an obvious public safety policy is to keep the power on, pre-position firefighting resources, and immediately start monitoring the high-voltage long lines from the air. The marginal cost of this early warning tactic would be more than made up by the uninterrupted revenues from ratepayers. Populated built-up areas need little monitoring since these already contain fire-safe properties, and people who live there can call the fire department. No one has explained why this obvious response policy would not work. Instead, we behave as compliant sheep, doing the same old, same old, to satisfy some mysterious purpose known only to our elites. Governor Newsom, all Californians look to you to bring about some positive changes for a change. My name is Rebane, and I also expand on this and related themes on Rebane's Ruminations, where the transcript of this commentary is posted with relevant links and where such issues are debated extensively. However, my views are not necessarily shared by KVMR. Thank you for listening. That's our newscast for this evening. KVMR's evening news airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. Coming up next, we have this week's edition of The Sages Among Us, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. That's all for tonight. Have a great night, everyone.